0: You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. That's how we're able to bring you speakers like James Corbett. The awesome James Corbett, who has illuminated so many minds around the world. The Library of Alexandria is on fire internet censorship from 9-11 to today. That's what we're talking about here. Now let's get to know this gentleman. He's an award-winning investigative journalist and the creator and host of The Corbett Report, a website he started in 2007 as an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. James was raised in Canada and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in English from the University of Calgary, and Masters in Philosophy in Anglo-Irish Literature from Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. He lives in Japan, and that since 2004. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it is my incredible pleasure to bring you Mr. James Corbett. James, how are you?
1: I am doing very well. Can you hear me loud and clear?
0: You sound fantastic and you look great too, all the way from Japan. Uh, what's
1: it's the- an amazing world that we live in, that we can be doing this live via the internet and speaking to each other as if we're in the same room. It is an incredible time to be alive, isn't it?
0: <laughs> it, it is. It's it's unbelievable. And, and the kind of things we're learning in this three-day conference, of which you are our last speaker Uh, but we have a surprise at the end also. Uh, James, uh, I've been waiting for the whole conference uh, to bring you on uh, with us. Uh, You have been an inspiration, not only to the 9-11 truth movement, because you cover this in detail. Let me just add, if you guys have not seen 9-11 trillions follow the money, when people say, why would they do this? Or or what, what what would they have to benefit from doing this i mean there are people like that in the probably most of the people they just don't get it right here here's the cui bono right look at that james has dug into it say just a few words real quick about that before i turn the whole floor over to you james 9 no, 11 the money.
1: Yes, thank you for that. Yes. Uh, for people who don't know, I did do a, a documentary film a few years ago called 9-11 Trillions, Follow the Money, in which I explored that question. If 9-11 was a crime, then the old dictum that we've heard from so many detective procedurals over the decades is follow the money. That's how we get to the bottom of who perpetrated a crime and for what reason and how it was done. So... That's what I attempted to do in that documentary, and I opened up a few of the money trails on uh, that uh, lead to various perpetrators of 9-11 and some of the interesting things that were happening that day that are documented that are not talked about. So anyone who is interested in that aspect of 9-11 is highly encouraged to go to corbettreport.com 911trillions, and that entire documentary, audio, video, and the complete hyperlink transcript is there, available for free, like all my work
0: throw us a bone, James. What What are three three of these uh, trillions that you're talking about here?
1: Well, uh, one of the, the things that I explore is not trillions, but billions, the billions of dollars in insurance money that was collected by Larry Silverstein. And that, in fact, I just did a follow-up on that quite recently on my Questions for Corbett podcast, where I talked about uh, someone asking, why why didn't the insurance companies... Uh, go after uh, Silverstein uh, using the evidence by architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth and others who have been proving that the demolitions of those buildings were not what we were told they were. Why didn't the insurance companies raise that in court? Which is a good question and goes to, I think, some of the deeper structural issues about what was happening on 9-11. I looked at the inside trading, the uh, the foreknowledge of the attacks that, was, that has been multiply proven by different uh, peer-reviewed studies over the years in various journals, economics journals, uh, uh, proving that there was foreknowledge of the attacks that were being used on put options and uh, uh, and future securities trading in the days and weeks and months leading up to 9-11. And I look at, perhaps most importantly, the announcement the day before 9/11 on 9/10/2001, the announcement from the Pentagon, Donald Rumsfeld saying, "Yes, we can't account for 2.3 trillion dollars of mi- uh, funds that have w- that are missing from our accounts. We 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 can't quite track out what's happened to them, but we're going to declare a war on bureaucracy." And that was the day before 9-11. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, again, I think there's a lot of very interesting information to dig up there. I did uh, at least start that in my 9-11 Trillions documentary. I hope people will go there and use it as a resource to find out more information about those. Those, I think, a very important p- aspects of what was happening that day.
0: Beautiful. I've got more questions for you, brother. But uh, I'm going to let you have the floor so that you can let us know uh, all about this uh Censorship issue. We're we're here to learn, and let me just tell you in advance, we're looking for solutions, <laughs>
1: as are we all. Well, thank you, Richard, for uh, having me here. Thank you to the architects and engineers from Nine Eleven Truth for hosting this Justice Rising conference. It's obviously one of the most important things we can be talking about right now is achieving justice for what has happened in the past couple of decades let alone however many years before that, um, but certainly what's been unfolding over the past couple of decades. And I am here to talk today uh, about the Library of Alexandria is on fire. And I'm going to go out on a limb, I'm going to guess that pretty much everyone in the audience and pretty much everyone in the general public has heard something of the story of the Library of Alexandria that goes something like, yeah, there was a great library at some place called Alexandria, And it had all sorts of ancient texts and it burnt down somehow and they were all lost. I think that's the general understanding of that story. And some people in the audience may even have a few more of the details that they can fill in there. That uh, Alexandria, of course, in Egypt and the ruler of Egypt under Alexander the Great's empire, Ptolemy, founded this library and it housed hundreds of thousands of scrolls, and it was burnt down in a fire in 48 BC, uh, during the siege of Alexandria, during the Roman civil war by Caesar's troops, something along those lines. Uh, Again, I think there is a general popular understanding of this story in broad outline. The only problem being like most stories in his story, this story too is mostly, most likely false, at least in its key details. Uh, for people who are interested in what scholars these days tend to believe about the Library of Alexandria. Well, yes, there was a library at Alexandria in Egypt, and it was famed, even in the ancient world, it was famed for housing so many different uh, books, scrolls at that time, and different topics. And it was founded in uh, around 2,300 years ago, uh, maybe by Ptolemy, maybe by his son, um, maybe by someone called Demetrius of Phalarum, Uh, It was not just a library, it was actually an entire research institution called the Museon that included uh, laboratories, it included uh, teaching, it included, it was a a whole research institution with researchers from around the ancient world, Uh, and it also included the library, which maybe housed 40,000, maybe 400,000, some say 700,000 scrolls, but no one knows for sure no one knows exactly the full contents of the library. We know some of the things that were stored there, but not all of them. And it was not burnt to the ground by Caesar. At least that's not what modern scholars think. Uh, it was probably at least an annex of the library, question mark, may have been burnt completely or at least in part, question mark, during that uh, siege of Alexandria in 48 BC. But that was probably probably not when the entire library was lost and all of those scrolls lost forever. There were a series of events over centuries that have been attributed to the the loss of the Library of Alexandria, but the truth, as always, is probably much more prosaic, namely that the institution fell into disrepair after a purge of intellectuals from Alexandria and a lack of funding and ultimately the the, uh, the, the library just basically started to degrade and it m- met a rather sad end of just basically falling into disuse and disrepair rather than the dramatic all going down in one big blaze of glory or uh, in- infamy. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, it, yeah, the story is probably not what we have all been told, but it is interesting to think of why that story of the fire destroying the Library of Alexandria is so resonant. And I think it's because it presents to us a couple of things. First of all, it it encapsulates the idea that human knowledge is hard fought, hard won. We have to scrabble to try to eke out this knowledge and understanding of the world. And that is a process that's been going on presumably for millennia. And it takes centuries to accumulate all this knowledge but it can all be lost in a moment. The great fragility of human knowledge is encapsulated in that story. And also, I think it is interesting to imagine that all we needed was one person with a fire hose at that moment of the outbreak of fire, and we could have saved all of this knowledge. Um, It is is certainly a story that resonates with people, uh, even if it isn't true in its particulars. But I guess the question is, so why does this matter? What does this have to do with the price of tea in China, let alone internet censorship in our present day and age? And I'd say it's because this story teaches us a couple of important lessons. Uh, One is that history can disappear in a puff of smoke. But the corollary of that lesson is that those who want to make history disappear can make it disappear by starting a fire. So I'd like to think that the parallels to the situation we find ourselves in today are becoming obvious to the more clued in listeners to this uh, talk, but let's spell it out uh, in its particulars. The Library of Alexandria was described at one point as the first attempt to bring together the some knowledge of humanity. And it really did aspire to that. It was an attempt to house, if not every book in the world, at least every important book or everything of any note. That was the the edict that was uh, given uh, when the library was founded. And it did its best to do that and collected a huge number of very important texts from the ancient world. But if if that remit sounds familiar, you may be thinking of Google's mission statement, which, for those not in the know, Google's mission statement is, quote, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful, which sounds pretty grandiose, as Unbelievably large attacks at task as that must have been 2300 years ago, it is orders of magnitude more uh, daunting of a task in this day and age where we have orders of magnitude more information, if not necessarily wisdom, uh, that has accrued over those 2300 years and more being added by the day. In fact, a mind boggling amount of information being added every day to the sum knowledge of humanity. Uh, when you think, for example, that 500, I believe it is 500 hours of video is added every every minute to YouTube, something along those lines. At any rate, there is a mind boggling amount of information that is coming uh, online every single day and uh, more and more so. So the idea of taking all of that information and organizing it and making it universally accessible and useful doesn't quite sound so laughable today as it might have say, even 20 years ago, back when Google was still in its infancy. Um, and it sounds quite noble until you start to dig into the particulars of how that is being done. But let's, let's backtrack a little. Uh, for the younger people in the audience, this story might sound hilarious to you. The older people in the audience might be able to relate to it, but uh, the idea that the internet essentially is the modern-day library of Alexandria, housing the some knowledge of humanity of humanity, is something that resonates with me because I remember specifically the arrow through the brain moment when I realized the important, the incredible transformation that we are living through right now, enabled by this technology that is allowing me in Japan to talk to you wherever you are, as if we are in the same room. Uh, The moment that it really dawned on me, the age of information that we're living in, uh, was 2003 when I was living in Dublin, uh, attending Trinity College, and I was over at a friend's place. Uh, She was having a little house party and there was a bunch of us there. And somehow someone got into a debate over who won the... 100-meter dash in the 1984 Summer Olympics or something along those lines. One of those very specific things that in, I, as I, I I was sitting there thinking about this and realizing at that moment that at any other time, that would have been the type of debate two people would have had and they had different ideas of who was the winner And it would have been left at that point, and people would have went home. And maybe, maybe if someone was particularly motivated, they would have went to the library, the actual physical library the next day, and looked it up in a book and said, see, I was right. It was so-and-so. But we didn't have to do that. Someone said, oh, I got the internet. So they checked it, and there it was. There was the answer right there at our fingertips, instantaneously. Suddenly, all these barroom discussions and debates that have happened all all throughout history of people arguing over admittedly trivial and not particularly important facts, but facts like that. Well, suddenly it can be resolved in a moment because we have the sum knowledge of humanity at our fingertips. And as I say, that was a trivial instance of that, but it was that arrow through the brain moment when I realized, oh, we are living in a fundamentally different world than we were even just a few years ago. And although that was a trivial example, a few years later it became much more important, specifically in 2006 when I was first being introduced to the wonders of YouTube and Google Video, do you remember that? And archive.org and other places like this. I was really starting to explore the internet as it was coalescing uh, in that time period, about a decade and a half ago. And lo and behold, I kept getting recommended videos on the sidebar of YouTube at that time, as I was trying to watch The Daily Show or The Colbert Report or other very mainstream types of information uh, about news and politics, I kept getting these recommended videos about 9-11 and 9-11 conspiracies, 9-11 truth. And I my initial reaction was to poo-poo them, laugh at them. And I would occasionally click on them just to satisfy my my penchant for laughing at these types of, oh, this is silly. I mean, I know that there are conspiracies and things happen, but not 9-11. So I would occasionally click on these videos and often enough I would be vindicated in my belief that they were uh, not particularly well put together researched pieces of information. At that time, there was a lot of nonsense about flying orbs brought down the the Twin Towers. See, look at this video of this flying orb and things like this, which was on its face ridiculous. But occasionally I would click on such a video and there would be an intriguing detail in there that I had never heard of, but that was inherently falsifiable. It could either be proven or falsified. It was a a statement of fact. So for example, when I came across information about Operation Northwoods, what, what is that? I've never heard of that. What is that? I didn't, again, like in 2003, arguing about who won the summer Olympic James, whatever, 20 years ago, I didn't have to speculate about it. I could go and look for it. So I did. And I found the actual Operation Northwoods document. I could bring it up and read it for myself and go, oh, oh, the uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff really was proposing committing terror attacks, staging false flag terrorist attacks in the United States and elsewhere to blame on their political enemies in order to gin up the public's uh, penchant for war. Well, that's that's an interesting piece of history that I didn't learn in school. And it was pieces of information like that. I wouldn't say Operation Northwoods was the uh, the thing that set the ball rolling, but it was one of the things that I was learning and seeing for myself. I was able to look it up because of this free flow of information on the internet. The Library of Alexandria was open for business, so to speak. But as you might have noticed over the last several years. In fact, I would say if you are in the 9-11 truth research space online, you will have noticed over the last several years. Uh, Yes, it is becoming more and more difficult to access this information. And as I say, that resonates particularly, I think, for 9-11 truth researchers. I'm sure it is something that we have all encountered in our travels around the modern-day Library of Alexandria, the, the types of uh, uh, error messages. Uh, the, this video has been deleted because the YouTube uh, user account associated with this video has been terminated, something along those lines. We've all seen those types of messages. And unfortunately, with increasing frequency in recent years, and that is something that is essentially the modern-day equivalent of book burning. Uh, the actual material, the, the the knowledge that is being collected in this library, some of it is being collect uh, de- uh, deliberately and carefully chosen for deletion, for burning, and that should concern us all, I think, for reasons that are self-evident. One, let's just take an example, and one that sticks out in my mind because it's fairly recent and it involves someone that I know personally, Dan Dix of PressForTruth.ca. Uh, had his entire YouTube channel scrubbed, 35 million views, over 200,000 subscribers, gone at the flip of a switch because, well, because reasons. Google doesn't even give reasons per se. They just say that it violated community guidelines in some abstract way, and the channel is gone. A channel that included, amongst many, many other things, uh, however many thousands of daily video uh, vlog-type materials, as well as feature-length documentaries like 9-11 Decade of Deception, which was the document of the Toronto hearings on 9-11 Truth, obviously took place in Toronto on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 in 2011. Uh, Again, gone. Now, there are, uh, thankfully, other copies of that, and you can still find those hearings online, but that is a pretty interesting example of a particular piece of 9-11 information, an important historical document that had almost 2 million views at the time that it was deleted, gone at the flip of a switch. And that is a warning, I think, to all of us working in this space, that yes, books can be burnt in this digital library of Alexandria. In fact, they are being burnt. And that raises the stakes of what is happening right now by orders of magnitude. But as concerning as that is, I have to warn you, there are more than one there's more than one way to burn a book in this library. In fact, you don't even have to burn the book itself in order to essentially make that library unusable. Um, because as I pointed out in a podcast that I did several years ago on film literature in the New World Order, where I talked about the library of Babel. Uh, talking about this idea of an infinite library in which every single combination of of letters, characters, uh, were printed in this incredibly infinite, essentially, uh, series of books. And people would wander through this almost infinite library for their entire lives, and they would be delighted to find one sentence that actually made sense amongst all this gibberish of characters in one of these books. That, that is, I think is perhaps even more to the point of what kind of library we are living in in the internet rather than the library of Alexandria. It's almost more like the library of Babel where it's just so much information that we can't even possibly make use of most of it unless we have an index that can tell us, oh, this, the, uh, of course, the collected works of Shakespeare are somewhere in the Library of Babel, just amongst all that gibberish. But do you know where? Well, if we had an index that could point us to that shelf so that we can take it down and read it, well, that would be very helpful. And then on a meta level, well, how do we even know that we want to look for Shakespeare? Well, there must be some sort of guide that can, <coughs> that can tell us about some of the important material, uh, material that's in the library. And so that guide would also be a handy thing to have for the library. Well, of course, you don't have to burn the books themselves. If they're hidden amongst this unimaginably vast library, you can burn the index cards that lead you to the important books. And that is being done too. Again, I can speak to this um, from a very personal example. Uh, uh, In 2014, I released a feature length documentary called Century of Enslavement, the History of the Federal Reserve, talking about the Federal Reserve and the way money is created in the United States Federal Reserve System. And uh, it was at one point the first search result on YouTube when in the YouTube search you typed in Federal Reserve, that would literally be the first thing that came up was my documentary. Uh, but the, to the horror of uh, MSNBC host, Chris Hayes, uh, that was the case. And he tweeted out a couple of years ago now, he tweeted out, imagine if you were a high school student assigned to do a project on the Federal Reserve and you typed Federal Reserve into YouTube and you got this. And he showed a screenshot of my documentary and he basically lambasted the toxic algorithm at YouTube for leading people to this information. Well, <sighs> You can imagine, and it was not very surprising, the very next day, when you type Federal Reserve into the YouTube search uh, bar, you did not get Century of Enslavement uh, on the first result. You didn't get it in the top 10. You didn't get it in the top 100. It was gone completely, replaced by uh, Federal Reserve's YouTube channel, CNN, MSNBC, of course, all the corporate controlled media and the official sources. Uh, became prioritized. And now we know, it it was revealed several months later by Google Insider Zach Voorhees, that wasn't by accident. It was because the search term Federal Reserve was put on a special internal YouTube uh, search blacklist uh, that it was carefully controlled and curated. Those results would only show you these types of things from these approved channels. Uh, As you might imagine, 9-11 Information is certainly, absolutely, being treated in the same way. Again, as anyone who uses these types of platforms will have noticed in the last several years, at one time you could search 9/11 truth and you would find a lot of 9/11 truth information and documentaries. Now you find you search 9/11 truth and you find more official. Uh, uh, types of information about 9-11, you find debunkings of 9-11 truth. But finding actual 9-11 truth is becoming more and more difficult. Essentially, they are burning the index cards That will help us find the information in this library of Babel. Maybe if you happen to know the the actual url for that particular documentary that you're looking for, uh, v6xbmt2 whatever, uh, then you can find that particular video. But I'm going to venture to guess no one is making note of the particular url and trying to memorize that. That would be ridiculous. No, you need the search engine in order to find this information. And on a more meta level, You need to even know that there is information out there that you are not being shown. For example, when you type in Federal Reserve and you get century of enslavement as as the top or one of the top search results, there it is. There you can find alternative information about the Federal Reserve. But if you are that hypothetical high school student who is just typing information, I just want to find out about Federal Reserve, I just want to find out about 9-11, and you just type that as a search term, and all you are presented with is officially approved information from corporate media and government sources, then how will you even know that there are other things out there that you should be searching for? So it presents a a very deep problem. And it gets even worse because another way that you can Uh, essentially burn, if not burn books in the library, you can at least arrange the library so that it is more and more difficult to access this information. Another way that is done is by changing the idea of what is recommended to you when you are looking for information on any subject or on a particular subject. So One example of this that I often go back to is, again, back in 2006, when I was first starting to look into this information, I vividly remember looking at, say, Google Video, which was a thing at that time where a lot of documentaries were hosted, because at that time, YouTube uh, uploads were limited to 10 minutes. Google Video offered longer. Uh, form videos like an hour, hour and a half, two hours. I remember watching a number of documentaries that way. And I also remember at that time, Google Video had a top 10, a daily top 10 videos in which uh, they displayed the most accessed videos. And every single day, I, I vividly remember around the time of the fifth anniversary of 9-11, I remember every single day there was some loose change or or some or multiple Uh, truth-related documentaries that were in that top 10 list every single day. And then I noticed when that suddenly went to all of a sudden it was nothing but fart jokes and utter trivial nonsense being in that top 10. It, It was changed from a top 10 to a trending or hot videos. And then they got rid of the top 10 altogether. And YouTube similarly at that time had a front page that was seen by everyone, the front page of YouTube, which would have inevitably things like loose change or those types of documentaries every single day. Well, that suddenly again flipped and changed and they t- changed it into a trending uh, videos, which was well, what's trending, what does that mean? Well, they get to decide what that means and uh, suddenly you wouldn't see any truth related information there. And then eventually, as we all know, they changed YouTube so that there isn't a homepage that is seen by everyone. There is a tailor made page seen for you. So perhaps if you tend to watch things like the Corbett report, if you tend to look for 9 information, you might be recommended that information, but it decreasingly so. And uh, at any rate, if you have not uh, looked for that information before, you are extremely unlikely to be recommended it by these algorithms. In fact, again, we don't have to speculate about this. This is on the record back on January 25th of 2019, YouTube put out a post on their official blog where they noted, quote, we'll begin reducing recommendations of borderline content that is content that doesn't actually violate their guidelines, but they don't like anyways, and content that could misinform users in harmful ways, such as videos promoting a phony miracle cure for a serious illness, claiming the earth is flat, or making blatantly false claims about historic events like 9-11, end quote. So you see how, of course, they conflate everything together, they smear it all as borderline content or misinformation, and. Put it off to the side so it will not be recommended. Uh, this is, of course, not uh, only Google or YouTube that is uh, guilty of this. It is pretty much every uh, major social media platform right now. Uh, just as another example, Twitter, after having long denied it and even denied it to Congress, has had to uh, admit in one form or another that they do shadow ban content. Uh, which, for people who don't know what shadow ban means, it was helpfully explained by former Twitter software engineer Abhinav Vedrevu in a secretly clandestinely recorded conversation that he was having, that yes, of course, Twitter does this. And the idea of a shadow ban, quote, is that you ban someone, but they don't know they've been banned because they keep posting and no one sees their content. So they just think that no one is engaging with their content when in reality, no one is seeing it, which is an interesting psychological maneuver uh, because, of course, it tends to demotivate people from posting that type of information. Well, no one's engaging with it. I guess no one's interested, which makes people believe that this information is not connecting. So they will likely, over the course of time, tend to change the, the type of information they're promoting because they're not being engaged with. At any rate, it certainly does prevent people from seeing that type of content. Uh, in a way that's very sneaky. It's almost as if the Library of Alexandria was accepting submissions of books, but we'll take that book, don't worry. And then they just never put it on the shelf. Well, they took the book. It's there somewhere. It's just that it's not being displayed for the public. Uh, Yet another example of how they can burn books without actually burning the books without deleting the content is to create a a section of the library called disinformation and fake news, and then put everything they don't like into that section of the library. Uh, Again, the books are there. You can read them. It's just that we're telling you this is fake. this is false. this is this has been debunked. If you are looking at this information, you you should know you are being misinformed. But you can look there if you want. And again, I don't think I'll have to elaborate how this is being done to people who are involved in this research space. It is being done through a series, a a network of fact checking uh, organizations and institutions that uh, presume to be able to tell you the, the, the truth of what happened on 9-11 or any other major historical or news event, because the government says this, therefore it's been debunked. Uh, they use a number of different tricks, uh, straw manning arguments and other things to try to debunk various information uh, so that people will not even look at it in the first place. And I did go through that in great detail in a recent episode of my podcast on who will fact check the fact checkers. So I hope people will look at that for uh, information about how the fact checkers are compromised and their serious conflicts of interest in terms of their funding versus what they claim to be debunking. Uh, but one, as one specific example of that and how it operates, I'll point people in the direction of something called NewsGuard, which aims to be a, essentially a browser extension or an app that people can use to uh, provide nutrition labels for various websites. This. This website provides nutritious fact-based information. This website is full of that fake information about 9-11 or other things. Uh, They get to decide what is true and what is not true, and they will helpfully inform people who are using their browser extension of the difference. So who is NewsGuard? Oh, that's right. It was co-founded by CFR member slash Rhodes Scholar Gordon Kravitz and is advised by people like 9-11 era NSA chief, Michael Hayden, Uh, the first Homeland Security Director, Tom Ridge, the ex-NATO Secretary General, Anders Fogg-Rasmussen, and others. These are the people who are going to be the arbiters of truth, people who are blatantly partisan and blatantly have conflicts of interest in determining the truth about events like 9-11, let alone many other events in the news. So I think, again, I won't have to elaborate for this audience how that works, but... All of this is to say, yes, the library of Alexandria is on fire. This is not a drill. The burning of books digitally or physically is not a joke. This is what dictators do. It is what they have always done. And people have understood this for millennia. Uh, You can go back to 213 BC when Qin Shi Wang, the founder of the Qin dynasty in ancient China ordered the burning of books and also as a bonus, the killing of scholars who challenged his rule, uh, destroying centuries of wisdom in one puff of smoke. Uh, After the Council of Nicaea uh, in the fourth century AD, Constantine the Great ordered the burning of all of the writings of Arius for his grave heresy of non-Trinitarianism Uh, And anyone who was found with a text of Arius after that point who did not immediately cast it into the fire was to be put to death. Uh, During the Spanish conquest of Yucatan, uh, Bishop Diego de Landa ordered the mass burning of ancient Aztec texts. And he was surprised to note the reaction of the locals to to this uh, order. He said, we found a large number of books in these characters, these Aztec characters. And as they contained nothing in which were not to be seen as superstition and lies to the devil, we burned them all, which they, the Maya, regretted to an amazing degree and which caused them much affliction. Hmm, I wonder why you're burning their their ancient texts. Why on earth would they get angry about this? Uh, During the burning of Washington in the War of 1812, remember that one? Uh, The British used 3,000 books from the U.S. Library of Congress as kindling to help burn down the U.S. Capitol building. Uh, Do you you get taught that in American school these days? I'm not sure. Uh, The New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which was founded by anti-vice advocate, Anthony Comstock in 1873 as a self-appointed guardian of public morality, actually considered book burning to be such a valuable part of the work that they did that they put an image of a man burning books on their official seal, not as a warning or not as some sort of, this is a dystopian nightmare. No, they did that as this is what we aspire to. We will burn all those bad books that you shouldn't be reading. Uh, and of course, the paradigmatic example of our times, the Nazis, of course, did engage in book burning of un-German books in their attempt to protect the value, the, the vulnerable, fragile German mind from information that the Nazi regime did not personally approve of. It has been understood for decades, centuries, millennia, that when dictators try to seize ultimate control of a population, one of the first things they do is burn books that contains information that go against their rule. So this is not some sort of vague or abstract thing that we should be kind of a little bit hesitant about. No, this is something we should be very concerned about. And one person who is concerned is someone that I think is perhaps the philosopher of this new age that we're living in, the age of biosecurity coming on on the heels of the age of homeland security. Uh, Giorgio Agamben, the Italian philosopher, who wrote in one of his recent writings, I do not know if bonfires will return and books will be put on the index, but clearly the thought of those who continue to seek the truth and reject the dominant lie will be, as is already happening before our eyes, excluded and accused of spreading fake news. News, not ideas, because news is more important than reality. As in all moments of emergency, real or simulated, we see once again the ignorant slander philosophers and scoundrels seeking to profit from the disasters that they themselves have provoked. All this has already happened and will continue to happen, but those who testify to the truth will not stop doing so because no one can bear witness. the witness. And that is what we are doing. We are bearing witness to what is happening and attempting to leave a record in the Library of Alexandria of those things that are happening. So it is not surprising that the people who are perpetrating acts like 9-11 would want that information to be scrubbed from that library. And this is, again, a, a type of dystopia that has been warned about for a very long time. People might be thinking of this in a literary context, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. And I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with that book. But for those who are not, in Fahrenheit 451, Bradbury imagines a world in which books are banned. And firemen are not people who rush into burning buildings to save them from the fire and to put out the fire. No, firemen are people who rush into burning buildings in order to, or, or who rush into buildings in order to burn books. If there are books found anywhere, these firemen are called to the scene, spray it with kerosene, and light the match to make sure those books are burnt. In fact, the official slogan of the firemen in Fahrenheit 451 is burn them to ashes, then burn the ashes. And uh, the protagonist of the story, who starts as just one of those firemen, uh, says near the beginning of the story, kerosene is nothing but perfume to me. And Bradbury paints a very vivid picture of exactly why a dystopian nightmare Uh, dictatorial society of the future, would want to burn books. Uh, For example, the fire captain in this story, uh, Montag's boss, uh, Fire Captain Beatty says, a book is a loaded gun in the house next door. Burn it, take the shot from the weapon, breach man's mind. Who knows who might be the target of the well-read man? And he goes on later in the story to say, what is fire? It's a mystery. Scientists give us gobbledygook about friction and molecules, but they don't really know. Its real beauty is that it destroys responsibility and consequences. A problem gets too burdensome, then into the furnace with it. It is a nightmare to live in a society where the public can be so thoroughly controlled by controlling its access to information. And that is the story of Fahrenheit 451, let alone the story of history. And that story, uh, that Bradbury's story, ends, of course, with Guy Montag becoming a rogue firefighter and escaping into the countryside uh, with a band of outcast scholars and literary critics who have essentially Uh, Memorized, or at least have in their memory all of these books that they have read illegally over the years. And it is their hope that they will be able to use these books to essentially restart human civilization after the nuclear apocalypse that takes place at the end of the story. Uh, Dramatic stuff. But uh, well, we may not be quite at that stage yet, but we are in the burning library right now. So we do have a part to play in saving these texts. And it is not a lost cause at all. Keep this story in mind when you think about it. Uh, This was from 2003. Aeschylus meets the mummy, 2,500-year-old lost Greek trilogy found under wraps. And this story, which uh, comes from playbill.com says, a 2,500-year-old trilogy written by Greek dramatist Aeschylus, which was thought lost to time, was discovered among the stuffing inside an Egyptian mummy. The trilogy titled Achilles concerns the title's warriors' adventures in the Trojan War. Scholars knew of the drama from references made by Aristophanes and other writers, but believed it burned up in 48 BC with the famous Library of Alexandria. But archaeologists found sections of the text inside a mummy, which Egyptians often filled out with papyrus. So at any rate, texts can survive the fire and... Perhaps that particular uh, saving of that particular text was coincidental. Um, Perhaps it was done by people to actually hide those texts away so they would be preserved for the future. At any rate, we can do that with the important texts in the Library of Alexandria. There is a part that we all have to play in this. There are some simple steps that we can all start doing today Uh, Just very simple steps that seem so trivial, but really can help to preserve this information. And I know, because this very much speaks to the work that I've been doing for the past 13 years at CorbettReport.com. It's a simple, simple uh, command to follow, but let's follow it. Save everything. Save all of those important documents that you come across online. Text, video, audio. If it is important, if you think this is information, that you would want to know in the future, save it, save a copy of it. It is incumbent on all of us to learn how to save a video from, say, YouTube, or to save it, uh, save an audio stream, or to save information, uh, an article, to your hard drive of a copy that you actually have access to, that you can access later when and if that information is scrubbed Online, I cannot stress how important this is because, as I say, over the years, please go back through the corporatereport.com archives. Go to a podcast I released a year ago, let alone a decade ago, and try to go through. As I always do, I link up the source documents of everything that I'm talking about—the videos, the articles. I always link them up. But the further back in the archives you go, the more and more you will find broken links, missing information. This you—this video has been scrubbed from YouTube. Uh, that happens. It. It just happens. And so thankfully, I have saved a lot of very important information to uh, external hard drives that I have physically sitting here that I can access later. And I have done that, uh, as I sometimes do. I take some of my old podcast episodes and uh, uh, give them to Brock West to make into videos that I can release as new videos on my channel. Sometimes there are videos and other things that from that uh, podcast that aren't available online anymore. But luckily, I have that information saved so I can give it to Brock, and we can continue to perpetuate that information. I cannot tell you how many times that has happened over the years, and increasingly frequently, unfortunately. Uh, Another sort of more meta way to approach this is that we need to stop using these controlled platforms, or at least stop using them uh, exclusively, because... It is self-evident at this point that YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, these are enemy weapons information systems. They they are controlled by the people who want to selectively burn the books in the Library of Alexandria. So don't just give them the books and then trust that it will be safe there. Of course not. Let's make sure that this information is on multiple outlets. And yes, of course, if you want to reach people and reach people who have not heard of this message, then there is still value in being on some of these controlled platforms, although less and less value. But at any rate, there is still the hope that you will be able to reach people who haven't heard this information yet. But at the same time, don't limit yourself to that. We need to start building up the alternative platforms, decentralized, peer-to-peer, cryptographically secure, censorship-adverse platforms that do exist. At this current time, I am now backing up everything I do to archive.org, bitshoot.com, Uh, library, uh, lbry.com and minds.com, as well as actually uh, having every mp4 and mp3 file that I do available for download directly from my own servers. It's on multiple platforms. Don't ever think there's just one backup you need. You need every possible platform uh, to be used. And hopefully, we can counter that network effect. Oh, there's no point in going on another video sharing platform. There's no point in leaving Facebook. Everybody's there. Well, everybody was on MySpace a decade ago, uh, but they're not anymore. So they're, they're, we can influence this. We do have a part to play in it. And on the meta meta level, I also want to throw out the warning that this technology itself is changing and is going to be deliberately changed in order to try to weed out our ability to save information. At least at this point, we have control over the devices we're using to some extent. We can refine search results and and go to different platforms and try different things. And we can save information to our hard drive. But in the future, we will not be using desktop, laptop, even pad-like computers, will be having hearables and wearables and this other uh, Alexa-type devices where you don't get control over anything. You say, Alexa, tell me what happened on 9 and Alexa reads you the Wikipedia entry, and that's it. That's your sum total of ability to access this information in the Library of Alexandria. The access points to this library are being winnowed. We must reject that. Do not accept, do not buy, do not purchase with your own money technology that is going to be used to limit your access to the Library of Alexandria. Do not accept it when they say, oh, it's okay. We're in the 5G internet of things, always connected world of tomorrow. You don't need a hard drive anymore. All you need is just a device that will interface with the cloud and everything will be stored on the cloud. There is no cloud, there is only someone else's computer. That is all the cloud is. So don't leave it up to someone else. Don't worry, they've got it saved somewhere somehow. No, we must make sure that we retain that control. So do not uh, aid the people who want to control access to the Library of Alexandria in that quest by purchasing these limited technologies that they are going to be rolling out. Uh, There's much more to say, but I just want to start with those those very basic baby baby steps, which we can all start doing today. Save information. You may be the person who saves an important document for the future. You may be the equivalent of stuffing those uh, plays of Aeschylus into the mummy that will be found by a future generation. Maybe not quite so dramatic, but at any rate, it is important. It is work that we can all be doing today. And I want to leave on this note. Think about the incredible irony, given what we've just uh, talked about, that the heroes, the universally acknowledged and understood heroes of 9-11 that everyone, whether they believe the official story, hook, line, and sinker or not, understands to be the heroes of 9-11 were the firefighters, the people who rushed into the burning buildings to save other people at the risk of their own lives and for 343 of them at the expense of their own lives, trying to save others that day. The firefighters, the ones who were held up as the heroes as long as it was politically convenient to do so anyway. And of course, uh, get them onto the pile to dig up the gold uh, from the WTC vaults. But once that's found, get them off the pile and forget about them. They're just political props as used by Mayor Giuliani and other politicians in a cynical ploy. And we've seen the way that their health effects have continued uh, to plague them over the years uh, from the toxic dust that they were inhaling at the time that the EPA and Christine Todd Whitman told them was safe to breathe because that's the way... The empire treats its heroes as soon as they become politically inconvenient. But at any rate, the firefighters were brave heroes who did rush into burning buildings to save other people. And now here we are, two decades later, and we are now the firefighters. We are carrying on the legacy of those people who were rushing into the burning buildings to save others. We are trying to save information that could ultimately change the course of human civilization. So, I hereby deputize each and every one of you today. You are now a firefighter. The Library of Alexandria is on fire. Let's save it. Thank you for your time.
0: The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs and, once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.